0: The OneStream Global Education Services team proudly presents The OneStream Podcast with your host, Peter Fugere.
1: Greetings, fellow OneStreamers, and welcome to The OneStream Podcast, where we explore and examine all things OneStream, talk to experts in the industry, and gain knowledge from some of the brightest minds that help deliver and implement solutions for our clients. This is part of the OneStream Expert Series, where we explore and examine the fundamental concepts, tools, and topics surrounding OneStream. And in this, our second season, we're diving into how customer business requirements become real solutions. I'm your host, Peter Fugier, Chief Solutions Officer at OneStream Software. And as always, I'm excited to bring this discussion to you from concept to reality. I'm grateful to welcome Philip Parker, Managing Director of Holland Parker. Welcome, Philip. I appreciate it,
0: Peter. Thank you for having me on your show.
1: Glad to have you here. We're going to talk about the build phase of the project and how that fits into the implementation cycle. But first, before we get started, tell me about Holland Parker. What makes you guys so special? Maybe give us a little history of the company.
0: Sure. So Holland Parker was created uh, in 2012. Um, I started, um, uh, I've spent a majority of my career in the corporate performance management space. And uh, one day decided I wanted to start up my own company. And so here we are uh, 10 years later. And um, now I've grown to uh, 50 plus consultants, all focusing on implementing OneStream. Um, I think one thing that, that makes us unique is we, we started off implementing uh, other corporate performance management solutions. And in 2015, I saw the, saw OneStream, a OneStream demo for the first time and decided right then and there that it was the wave of the future. And uh, candidly, we never looked back. And in 2017, we became a OneStream-only partner and only focusing on doing OneStream implementations.
1: And you, you guys are mostly based down in Texas, but you've really expanded. Where where do you serve now? What what parts of the country or North America can we find you guys?
0: Yeah, we've, we've spanned uh, east to west coast. Uh, so we have consultants all the way up in the northeast. Uh, and also we've done uh, projects for clients in the northeast as well as all the way over to California. We've done global implementations as well. So we've done quite a bit of worldwide traveling doing the implementation, but also uh, doing training for the global companies
1: so that like I said, this season we've been talking about how concepts become solutions. I mean really starting with the you know where somebody has an idea at one stream and we follow it all the way through the process and and now the second half of this season we're really focusing on the implementation and the biggest part of it obviously, is this build phase. When you're talking to a client, you're sort of laying out your methodology. How, how do you describe the build phase to them?
0: So typically we uh, preempt that, I guess, with making sure the design and requirements phase uh, goes really well and the, and everybody's on the same page before starting the build phase. Part of the build phase is taking what we put down on paper and, and implementing it within one stream, but also including the client during that time to make sure one, we're, uh, meeting their needs, meeting what we've uh, what we've all agreed upon doing the build, but also getting them educated around the build phase. So some things that they start getting their hands dirty with doing uh, data analysis or um, also building reports. So two things that we we uh, we work on with our clients to make sure that they're uh, ready for the user acceptance testing during the build phase is making sure that. The data that we're bringing in, uh, whether it's three years of data, uh, five years of data, is um, uh, meets their requirements, and also that they are um, approve of the data that we brought into the, the system, but also around building reports. And so uh, having them getting, getting their hands dirty and also getting them familiar with building reports and also uh, finding anomalies in their data helps move along the user acceptance testing once we get there after the build phase. With that said, I will say that things around Data reconciliations and reports is usually something that does tend to change and build because they start really owning the system and realizing how powerful the system is and how powerful OneStream is and what reports they can start generating out of it, especially if we're bringing in data sources that they've never, say, had access to in the past because maybe they came from a system that didn't have them or it came from Excel that just couldn't handle the amount of data that we're bringing into OneStream.
1: How do you break up a a build phase then? Do you consider breaking it up or do you just, how do you tackle that?
0: Um, Typically, we take every uh, requirement that's within the design and requirements and then break those down in task. And then we assign those tasks to our project team. Our project teams typically have two consultants per kind of phase of the project. And when I say phase of the project, I consider consolidations a phase, people planning a phase planning and forecasting a phase, right? So if you're doing all three of those at the same time, you may have multiple consultants in there, typically two two at a time per those phases. And within that, we break down those and then talk to the client about what would they like to be uh, a part of. And again, we try to include our clients on, on each pieces of those uh, build task items so they start becoming familiar in the system. I think what we've tend to uh, uh, find that works really well is making sure that our clients become experts in the software so that what they do, you know, going forward is, is really build upon the, the platform and, and really embrace it. So it goes from, we, we we're only going to use it for consolidations, but now we're going to, you know, wow, we, you just open our, let's, can we use it for account recs, transaction matching, uh, planning, you know, and forecasting and, and so on. So
1: each sort of piece of the marketplace, you're tackling a sort of different work stream as you go forward.
0: Correct. So what we what we really like is to have consolidations as a, a base layer uh, and then build upon that because actuals feeds a forecast. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of times you're doing actuals versus budget or it feeds account recs and, and, and whatnot.
1: I've had people ask me that before, too. I'm curious what you think. What can you do? Do you have to lead with actuals? Do you have to start with budget and forecast? Or can you start with budget and forecast? My feeling on it has always been, you know, it, it depends. It depends on where you are in the uh, the timeline. Um, sometimes you're right. You do need actuals for forecast, but you can limp something uh, along. You can get something in to populate that piece of it at least. What What do you tell people when you get asked that?
0: I think just exactly what you said we can start any place if i have my if somebody said what's your choice i would say yeah. implement account or actuals first and and then let everything get bolted onto that i think one thing that we've started changing as a firm as well is doing taking a step back from design and requirements around a particular phase and looking at all the phases. So a lot of companies are buying in, I say buying in, but really seeing the vision and the platform platform play of OneStream. Well, when you do that, you need to take a step back from just doing, let's say, a design and requirements around consolidations and then following that up six months later with the design and requirements around planning and forecasting, we take a step back and bring all that in. And so what that allows us to do is say, this is how we're going to get this implemented. Here's your timeline, and these are the things that um, you need to have in place before you can put all those in. And typically, Peter, we answer those questions during that time. Can planning go first? We've had clients that would like to do account recs first, and that kind of takes, you know, you're bringing in quite a bit of actuals to do account recs. You know, can we pair that up with consolidations? But again, that that it's just laying out, laying that out, and understanding. We're trying not to do is to have rework in the future because we may have missed something because of going first with a certain phase.
1: Yeah. Well, let me ask you, how how important is project management in the build phase?
0: I think that from from a standpoint of the actual implementation team, that making sure that our clients have uh, weekly status meetings, even we, we now do um, uh, steer, steering committee meetings. And so kind of taking a step up, having, say, biweekly steering committee meetings, uh, weekly status meetings, and also... Uh, weekly status reports is is very important and a part and in, in an integral part of our our implementation methodology um, if not having that not knowing again you go you know usually our build uh, phases are eight to ten weeks in length uh, if you don't want to wake up at the end of ten weeks and be like well we didn't you know we were waiting on x y and z from y'all or you know start going back and forth about that because you know we're trying to meet uh, UAT deadlines, also parallel deadlines and things like that. So I feel like it's very important. I think one component is, you know, pairing up with a project manager from the client side, uh, depending on the size of the project, but making sure that they're, uh, you know, working internally with their internal team, making sure that we get things delivered uh, as needed uh, and as required during the build phase. How do you track
1: like certain tasks You know, I I find, you know, sometimes a spreadsheet or using project is helpful, but I mean, really some of the, like you said, I mean, if you have multiple tracks, it's sort of like a matrix, you know, you've got reports, but you've got reports for maybe three different solutions or something going. How do you find the best way to communicate that, that project progress?
0: We use either spreadsheet or Excel. Um, Spreadsheet tends to, it's pretty agile and you can um, have uh, external users uh, take a look at it, but we also Send. So we have that that tracks it from a very granular level, but also have taken a step up for our status reports that are typically one, maybe two page PowerPoints that just tell a client where we're at, how much, you know, how many hours we're, we're used up and who's working on what at a very, a very high level. I would, uh, by the way, when we mention multiple streams, it's at rare. We've probably done we've done implemented for over 85 or 86 uh, client, one-stream clients. I would say that a majority of those do projects sequentially over a period of time and not in parallel because of exactly what you said, Peter. One, the change management around it is huge, uh, is is to, you know, you're, you're, the, the company's taking on a lot of different things, especially for implementing planning, forecasting, people planning, account recs and consolidations, but to do that over time and do it sequentially I feel like it allows us to take a step back before each one of those phases and determine, do we need to tweak something? Do we need to change something? Do yeah. we have enough training? And kind of answer those questions before doing everything in, in uh, parallel.
1: You know, it's interesting you say that too. That I, I've always recommended the same thing and kind of the same reason. I mean, you know, when you look at like a whole project, you know, there, there's some things like, Actuals, where you know the to be honest, the whole process is sort of rigid, everybody sort of follows the same sort of things. People have to report the same kind of data, so even though the chart of accounts might be different, some reports might be different there 's a lot that 's consistent and the same, and as you get into some of the certainly the budget and forecasts, then management reporting, and then maybe into you know any type of specialty reporting, sometimes the client I find is grabbing at straws you know what i mean like they what they're telling you what they'd kind of like and it's it's edging into like business transformation and um and and when you look at that whole project you know if you if you tried to do everything at once you might get 95 percent done and that last little five percent sort of taints everything else as opposed to from a project standpoint i find let's knock out actuals win Let's do budget. Win. Let's do forecast. Win. Now we got a count rec. Win. Boom, boom, boom. And then you get to some specialty reporting. And even if you get hung up, you know, and it delays things, it's just that piece. And everybody can recognize, well, yeah, we knew that was a a long shot or, you know, that was sort of a, you know, a stretch goal, you know, to get this last piece in. And, uh, you know, you, you sort of can capitalize on so many other wins. How do you communicate all the way through? And for me, communications like with the client during the build phase, you got to communicate, you got to talk to them. What, what's the process you use to communicate with the, with the client during the implementation?
0: It's a standing status meeting every week that our team works with the client on, um, you know, and make sure that they everybody's kind of debriefed on what happened during the prior week, what's going to happen for the week going forward. Um, and whatnot. I think the, the steering committee is to help with t- communicating up through the client organization that this is, and, 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 and how, and mechanically, how to communicate down through the c- client organization that this change is coming through. From a w- the way we handle, um, I guess, client success is at the end or towards the end, is maybe like before parallel, is to walk them through a survey of um really how did how did Holland Parker do how do you like the one stream app you know the application what things could change so we can adjust as well if needed on maybe phase two or just at, at other clients. something that we do that we just started uh, we put together and just started implementing is called a complexity assessment and that's actually done before, we actually bid on the work. We, what we do is we send it out to multiple people in within the organization, it's all anonymous, but then they give candid feedback about how complex they think the organization is around, around the one stream requirements. And it's pretty interesting because you'll find, you know, CIOs may think that one, their priorities are totally different, but they think that their complexity around, say, FP&A isn't that bad. But then you go to maybe somebody in the FP&A world they're like, oh, we have allocations all over the place. And and so it, it allows us to drive those questions out so we can do a better job in our design and requirements as well as our build um, when we're implementing OneStream.
1: And so this is interesting. You know, earlier in the, the podcast series, we talked to folks about requirements and design meetings. And, and uh, I don't want to uh, distract from that. I mean, people put a lot of thought in requirements and design. But I like the way you said this, Philip. You know we're not going to uncover everything uh, about every part of the build. You know, um, implementing. You know, in that uh, the design and requirements meetings. Um, part of that is cost, keeping that that sort of tight down. But then as you're going through that build, it allows you to be reactive as you're learning more about how something should be set up. You're able to pivot and and I think do it correctly. And as long as you're sort of staying within your budget, I found the client is. is probably happier you know they're 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 having a team that's agile right in the sense that they they can pivot and move and, and do things but they're sort of going through a fixed waterfall sort of phase you know this is our build and if something's too big you can always like well hey listen do you want to do this now or do you want to maybe do a phase two or something like that
0: right they um I think in, in all that, it's one, getting their eyes on it, but also getting them familiar with what's being put in before they see it, in whether it's UAT or in parallels or whatever is after the build phase, whatever phase we want to call that, right? And yeah. the more they get their hands on it, the more we see that those phases are successes and we don't see a, a surprises jump out at us like, well, we didn't see X, Y, and Z or whatnot. You know, I think the biggest aspect, or some of the two two biggest aspects that we see timelines get extended, are through data reconciliations, as I mentioned before, as well as reporting.
1: Yeah, data is definitely one of the project risks. I, I think I have that one of these a question to talk to you about in this discussion. So, um, but let's talk about the team. What kind of team do you put together? Is it you know younger staff people in a lead? Um, do you have a design expert? How often are they on site? What What do you usually, for a typical implementation, what do you recommend for the team?
0: So typically, uh, and again, just, you know, every, every client is a little bit different, but typically the way we staff our projects is an engagement manager is a solution architect, right? And you could use those two interchangeably, but they are not, not only there to support the team, but also communicate statuses, things like that. They'll usually be on multiple projects at a time. Uh, again, depending on the you know size of the project or whatnot. And then we'll have a lead and a, a lead consultant and a consultant on the project. Both of them typically been trained, either trained up and certified as well in um, OneStream. Uh, and then sometimes we'll have an associate consultant as we are growing with the OneStream community, uh, have a OneStream associate consultant. And again, that's usually somebody that's not Maybe not billable in a billable capacity, but they're helping out re- with reporting and just getting ideas um, around uh, um, how to, you know, how to be a consultant and a one stream consultant at, the, at that.
1: And that's that's not a bad approach either. I mean, it lowers the consulting cost mix and and, uh, you know, it helps the client out a little bit. You don't always need a, you know, a master you know, one stream architect to do some of the more basic tasks that need to be done. So that makes a lot of sense. How involved is a client during the build phase for you guys?
0: I would say that, you know, that's probably if you looked at a a, uh, a by phase involvement of the client, it's probably the least amount of involvement during the build phase, um, because we've we tried to do up at the very beginning, a a, um, a really good job around driving what's going to be in the build phase and now we're just kind of putting the puzzle pieces together. Um, there are a few items that, that you know we require the, the uh, client to get their hands dirty on and, and ask them to be part of it, uh, but really they, they start getting really heavily involved in user acceptance testing as well as doing parallels and then finally taking ownership of the application.
1: Well, what about the administrator? Do you have the administrator helping you build during the, the build uh, part? Occasionally,
0: or? what we're really doing with the administrator is trying to get them not just to build a few items, because the problem is we don't want to put build items that could delay, say, the build timeframe, is we give them build items that are maybe a little bit ancillary. So maybe they ask for a set of three reports, they want five reports. Well, we get those two reports outlying from the three, we may put on the, the administrator. What we really do with the administrator is making sure they get trained up with uh, uh, going through OneStream's training and making sure that they're ready, because typically they won't do that during design and requirements, or and really before the project even starts, they're not going to training. So it's a good window for them to go to training.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about data reconciliation. You brought it up a couple times. It's such a critical. It's it's a critical phase. It, you know, everybody's brought it up as like one of the biggest risks. You know, I think it's the first time the client's really rolling up their sleeve and and seeing their numbers and validating it and everything else. You know, one of the common questions I get asked because it's such an important thing. And you know, sometimes we need to get resources in to keep it on track or to speed things up. I always get, can you outsource this? What do you what do you tell people when they want to outsource all their data reconciliation?
0: We tell them no, nobody knows their data like they do, and that's that
1: the, yeah, yeah, that's the truth.
0: I'd, I'd rather push a timeline than outsource the uh, to a, uh, outsource the data reconciliations piece. Um, I feel like what's interesting is that forecasting and planning, they kind of it's like, well, we'll just round up. It's okay the data if the data is wrong, you know, a little bit off or whatnot. Maybe the allocation didn't work perfectly, but it's it's good enough for us to go live. In the consolidations world, they're like, nope, everything has to be perfect because it has to match what they report, a lot of times what they reported the street, but also, um, you know, they're putting their name on it and a lot of times it's becoming the system of record. And so we try to look at every alternative not to outsource that, even even if that means have a staff consultant so we can guide them and help them a little bit because we have now by that time know what we're looking for because typically we'll tie out a few months of data for, for the client, um, that it kind of helps speed that along. Uh, but I, again, I would rather, I hate to say it, but I'd rather delay the project and, 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 um, and make sure that the client, you know, has the time, but that has a lot to do with planning for the project as well. So at the very beginning, we're telling them when we hit this component and I, and I, maybe I could take a step back from how much time is involved with the build phase. Like I don't, when they're reconciling dad, I don't think that's a, a build task on our end. Um, but that sometimes it could take them a week of their time, two weeks of their time to get through, say, three years worth of data um, and make sure that it's all buttoned up and make the decisions that are necessary. That, uh, And that's, I would say, Peter, that's probably another item. It's not just looking at the data, it's making, that's where the, why you can't outsource it because sometimes they have to make decisions whether they're going to topside something, whether they're going to yeah. book, a, book a certain entry. And if you can't get somebody's time to make that decision, then or or have somebody that can make that decision, well that can delay the project as well,
1: yeah, for sure, and also too i I think people uh underestimate I mean that's you know when when somebody's calling up and they have a question on how to fix something in the app or where did this number come from, the process of going through the data reconciliation I think helps helps the people develop the skills the tools they need to answer those questions, you know so um, you know, they're kind of learning and you don't want to outsource that learning. You know, then you really can't take ownership of the application later. Right. How do you support uh, users through this data reconciliation?
0: So we've come up with a kind of a couple things. So one thing we have a very hand, usually have a very hands-on training with them about how to do data reconciliations, what we saw in the, the months that we reconciled for them and have them walk through that. But we also have kind of, I call them, Hall & Parker templates for data reconciliation, so these workbooks that are that we modify for the client to walk through their data reconciliations. And a lot of times it, it involves, you know, you can't, because you're comparing it to another system, what we're doing is, you know, it has like Excel macros and things like that to compare the two systems, so it makes it a little bit faster uh, for that if they have something to compare to, which typically they will, I'm just saying, if it's not a PDF or, you know, something that we can work with. Well, let's talk
1: report writing strategies because report writing, I think, is another another big part of the build. Do you guys use a report inventory or what tools do you use to help the client prioritize reports that they need to develop?
0: It's, it's yeah, you know, taking a report inventory and then also um, looking at who their re- end user audiences are going to be that are building reports. So are they going to be more heavy around cube views, which are well-formatted reports, or are they going to be more ad hoc slash... Kind of quick few users right and then it kind of determines where we're going to split uh, uh and, and actually spend our time building those reports a lot of that has to do so we have our own uh, training classes and also uh, e-learning exercises for them and what we do is we gear it towards the company so around their metadata around their you know their processes so they they can have something to work off of to build those reports a lot of times That's another thing that can delay, let's say, the the bigger picture of getting to parallel or, you know, trying to hit your forecasting and budgeting um, is trying to put all the, you know, the hundreds of reports into a build phase. Um, Those should be kind of the evolutionary process within the the software or one stream lifecycle, not, hey, can we need a thousand reports before we release our, you know, to do budgeting and forecasting? Um, we'd I'd rather spend that time on training them so they can get access to their data. If you want to make another couple a pretty PowerPoint or something like that, we can do that, whether it's after the budget cycle, during the budget cycle, but not to delay the, the key factor of, of getting the budget and forecast within the OneStream application.
1: And what about Excel conversions? I mean, I've had clients that have had, you know, they, they, they're in this Excel world, uh, maybe they're coming from a legacy tool. That's their the reporting's reporting's primarily Excel, and they have hundreds of Excel models at every location. What's what's the best strategy, do you think, for helping a customer migrate off of those Excel's either to reports or to a, a new uh, the new Excel retrieve model? What
0: what do you think works best? Coming from an HFM world, we actually have uh, little tools that will convert all those to uh, XF, XF gets, you know, because a lot of folks had, um, had had HS gets, HFM retrieves, right? These large Excel files, and actually, we've done we've converted those um, with a, with a tool, and and they're away they go. But to actually, if they don't have something like that, or maybe they they just use heavy Excel and large data retrieves. Um, you know, we holistically take a look at them and see and try to do a, a report rationalizations for the for the client. It just depends on how much they're going to invest in rationalizing reports and, and building them out for their end users to use right when they go live. Usually there's a, a handful, maybe three, maybe 10 reports, yep. and it's not hundreds that they have to go live with. And then we determine whether or not we're going to train them uh, or basically look at them and go, OK, hey, these five look um these five look uh, uh, similar, so now we're going to do like row sets and column sets, so they can build off those uh, those cube views or build those cube views relatively quickly off the row sets and column sets.
1: That's a great uh, answer. What about testing? Tell me about testing approaches. You know, and and when you do get to testing in the in the build phase.
0: You know, I think that's an iterative, iterative cycle within within the consultants doing testing at all points. Right. So, if you load data and test it and everything ticks and ties, and you reload data, then you need to retest it and make sure everything ticks and ties. It's something moved, it's something come in and out that you need to, to modify. On the planning and forecasting side, if you build an allocations rule, you're constantly testing it on a couple of use cases. I think the gotchas that you need to watch out for is we all test um, at, on a usually a much smaller scale. And unfortunately, due to time crunches, sometimes you don't test it on a larger scale until you get into user acceptance testing. Make sure you test with a very, you know, a, a data set that's uh, going to be applicable to how the application is going to work in the future. So you can hit those, um, and ask questions about how can we tweak and tune the application if needed before user acceptance testing or even hopefully not parallel.
1: And let, let me ask you one more thing: What are the biggest project risks, and especially what what are the biggest risks during the build phase?
0: Um, I think that is 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 client buy in, but also client time. So while the build phase doesn't necessarily consume. Uh, uh, all their time, right? It's making enough time for the the, the project, but also, also having somebody that's willing to be the champion within the organization. We all know there's going to be in the projects, there's always going to be uh, bumps in the road on both, you know, from a consulting implementation standpoint, but also from the client standpoint. And how are those bumps in the road being managed um, all the way down to the end users, right? If, if, the day the report doesn't work exactly like somebody doesn't want, you know, how is that being communicated and addressed from both the implementation side, but also the client side? You know, I think to your point, what we talked about the communication, being able to communicate out what's going on during each phase of the project. Also, during, you know, not just to be like, well, clients, we're going to disappear for eight to 10 weeks and come back, but is talking to them on a weekly basis of what's being built and informing them. Um, as you're tracking to their design and requirements. I did, one thing we didn't really touch upon, but it happens is, you know, scope creep. What happens if something comes in that maybe one of our consultants, this happens, consultant, uh, we have a many, including myself, very people-pleasing consultants that will take something on and then all becomes, it becomes much bigger than what, it, what they originally thought maybe it was just going to be an hour or two worth of work, right? And yeah. how to address those during that time. I think that Um, making sure it doesn't get out of hand so that the project stays on track.
1: Another great discussion. Thank you very much, Philip, for bringing your expertise to the podcast today. And thank you, fellow OneStreamers, for joining us. Remember, if you like this content, please don't forget to hit subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. Questions, comments, or concerns, please reach out at podcast at OneStream Software. I look forward to bringing you another exciting podcast. And until then, take care, and I'll see you next time on The OneStream Podcast.
0: The OneStream podcast is brought to you by the OneStream Global Education Services team.